Hey everyone, you're listening to GNU World Order episode 19, season 13. This is for 125-2019. That is the 125th day of the solar year 2019. I don't know, is, is 2019... I mean, is, it is a solar year. Is it the solar year? I don't feel like it is. Anyway, I got some listener feedback here. Uh, one is from a guy named Distro Junkie, and he messaged me on Mastodon. I'm going to try to start paying more attention to people who talk to me on Mastodon. That's not to say that I'm not paying attention to them. I mean, bring to light their their messages as part of the feedback of the show. It probably won't last for long, but I'm going to make the effort. Distro Junkie says, I too used the Julian date calendar during my time in the USAF. That's US Air Force. The USAF kept track of everything and used an 80 character line to store information using two digits for the year three digits for the date of the year or the day of the year they were able to store a date with only five ascii characters they had manuals full of codes designating equipment components failure codes actions taken etc we used a burroughs mainframe i don't know what that is for the record b-u-r-r-o UGHS mainframe to store the date uh, the data with dumb terminals for input fond memories that's it's, it sounds very very cool i mean to experience a mainframe in earnest seems cool and and you know it's it's one of those things where i i don't feel like you can ever capture that looking back like even if you go to a, a place where a mainframe is running and you you tinker around on it some I don't feel, and, and I feel this way about a lot of things, but I feel like you really get the experience. Whatever experience it is that you're looking for, you're, you, you, you have that experience when the chips are down, as they say. You know, when there is something on uh, at stake. There's a deadline to be met, or, or there, there's some kind of, there's intensity. If it's just messing around with something, you don't really have that experience. And I think I started catching on that catching on to that like with so much else uh, through linux because a lot of times i would i'd back way way back when you know you you would test a distribution you try it out or maybe you're trying a new application out that you that that is claiming to do something that you wanted to do and so you try it out and and sort of in the comfort of your own home in the lazy afternoon you try this computer out or you try this uh or this rather distribution out or you try an application out and you think yep this is this is exactly what they advertise. This is great. This is very exciting. And then you try to put it into production, and then suddenly everything changes. Your view of everything changes. And I think that's that's largely with really anything in life. You put it into production, whatever production means, and your view on things that seemed one way shifts a little bit. And I think for a mainframe, I imagine... That would be the same. You could go try it out, but you really you haven't tried it. You haven't actually used it until you have used it, because it's because things are depending upon it. I don't know that I'd want to use a mainframe that things were depending upon. I, I really, I honestly don't. I'm not sure. I'm pretty comfortable with what I have right now, so I, I'm not hundred percent percent sure how I would like to emulate that experience. I'm, I'm I don't know. I, I sincerely don't know what it's like, so I'm not really sure. But um. Anyway, that's a thing. Uh, listener Grant, I think, yeah, Grant messaged me and said, and I quote, best podcast in the Linux world. You know, now that I mention it, I don't actually know what he was talking about. He was he was talking around GNU World Order, but I, I can't say for sure that he was talking about GNU World Order. I mean, he just says best podcast in the world. 
So, but it was in the context of GNU World Order. Oh, in the Linux world, by the way. That's I shouldn't I shouldn't leave out that part. And then uh, finally, there was a message, a very useful message, which uh, I think Ken Fallon will probably appreciate, because this is from uh, Distro Junkie again, I think. Oh dear, where did it go? This is an important one. And he says, um, he says, your music, to me, he says, your coffee music, yep, it was Distro Junkie, your coffee intermission music is Zuider Z by Lynn Stevens. I like the Dutch connection because I'm Dutch. So apparently, yeah, the coffee music that I play is a, a, a song by a person named Len Stevens. I looked up more of Len Stevens' work, and actually it's all great if you are into sort of um, I don't know really what, I mean, it's really pop music from, from the pre, I guess, pre-60s is what it would be considered, maybe, um, is what they would call, you know, they, they called pop music back then a lot, something a lot different than I think we think of pop music now. So if you like that sort of pop music, you will love Len Stevens. I highly recommend checking more of his music out. I'm really, really fascinated that someone took the time to identify the song. I mean, I don't, I'm sure there's technology these days that makes that pretty easy but still it, it was cool to to get some feedback about that and uh, another one on from mastodon david uh emailed or messaged me and said that uh i first tried to create a flat pack for bisque b-i-s-q but failed because i couldn't get bisque to build without relying on network resources. I needed to map out each dependency from Gradle. Gradle is a Java build tool which downloads dependencies. Snaps did not have this limitation slash feature. By the way, Snap can install a snap file with the dash dash dangerous flag. So this is Klaatu again. I, I find this feedback, or this, um, this report, I guess, interesting and surprising because... From what I understand, in Snap, so what's happening here is that, or what I believe is happening here, is that Flatpak and Snap both are considered sandboxes. That's what they're, for whatever reason, that's what they're called. And it it, it simply means that you can install a, an application into this virtual box, I guess. That's I guess filled with sand, and you can let it, you can sort of let the application play all at once as long as it stays within this sandbox. I mean, is that a limitation of sandboxes in real life? Do children, are children told to stay in a sandbox when they play in a sandbox? I, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, that's what it is. So, I mean, it's more like a, sort of a crib, or, or a cot, I think is, uh, is that what they call it in England? A cot? I don't know. You know where babies, there's a, sort of a, you put them in a, a fence in a cage, put babies in cages, people do that. Um, but anyway, some people put them in sandboxes, and they, I guess they say, don't get out of that sandbox. And that's what's happening here, is that this application is in a sandbox, and so the theory is that it can do whatever it wants to do, but but any kind of mess that it makes, now I'm getting the, the analogy, uh, doesn't exit that box, right? It stays within that sandbox. So, in order to get outside of that sandbox for important, globally, sort of significant things, like a network, or or a specific demon that maybe we wouldn't want someone to mess around with. But but for this application, we're opening up permissions for it. So both Flatpak and Snap implement 
methods by which you can do that, by, by which the developer making the Flatpak or the Snap can do that. And in Snap, simply because it's on my screen right now, you do that in the definition file, in the little YAML file that you're creating to define what the Snap involves. And one of the things that you do is you grant it a, a specific a permission, a, a security policy for a specific thing that's, that, that, that Snapcraft developers have defined. And, and for instance, if you needed the network, as far as I know, you should be able, you, you should be, you should be required rather to define that. You should have to say plugs network, meaning permit this thing to, to attach itself to my actual computer's network, uh, in order to do certain things. That's what I thought. And you can see all the different interfaces that you can access in Snap with the command Snap Interfaces. So why um, why he didn't why why David didn't have to do that specifically, I'm not a hundred percent sure, really. I'm not I'm not I'm not clear on on why it would not have been it should have been restricted on in in the snap as well as just just as much as it would be restricted for instance on flatpak and flatpak calls these same things these security policies portals and so you can you you can tell you you can give flatpak your flatpak permission to access for instance uh i want you to present the the user's native file chooser dialog box instead of, for instance, the generic one that comes with the flat pack, which, which personally I think is brilliant. Uh, I wish more. I, I wish that was a thing for every for every Linux application. I, I really do think that there needs to be an abstraction layer for file choosers. But I've I've talked about that in a previous show. Um, opening URIs, printing, taking screenshots, even things like that, they need special permissions to get out of that proverbial sandbox. So why why Snap wasn't restricting him to that, I'm not sure. I, as far as I understood, it should be restricting him to that. Now that said, there are things that Flatpak, and this goes back to an email that Alexei sent me quite a while ago now, there are things that Flatpak just doesn't seem to be all that great at doing. For instance, being a command on a command line, right? And I've talked about this in a previous episode as well. If, if you want to launch the, the GIMP application from a Flatpak, you, you have to type in flatpak run org.gimp. GIMP with a capital or not with a capital, dot GIMP with a capital or not with a capital, I forget what. And you're supposed to remember that, and that's supposed to be the command that you use? I mean, that's insanity. No no one's going to do that. That's that's ridiculous. And so then you'd have to go and say, well, okay, I guess what I will do is I'll, I'll make some location that contains all of the executable, I'll, I'll alias all the executable commands that I actually want, like GIMP or, or PDFTK or whatever. I'll email, the, or I'll, I'll alias those rather to to the flat pack command and it just seems that that seems messy especially since you have to do that yourself you have to maintain it yourself and and really maintaining it yourself i mean that means that you have to do it yourself which i mean that's not that bad but it, it's it's the things that change and you know you've done something and then you walk away from it and you forget that you did it and then you update something and and suddenly your commands aren't working anymore, and you can't figure out why until finally, in the middle of the night, after hours and hours of banging your head against a wall, you you, you it dawns on you, oh right, the, I I have to re-alias that thing, you know that that sort of thing. We've all been there. 
And then finally, I have an email from uh, Claque, and he says, this is about the zip and the bzip thing. So he says, on episode 1313, you talked about how great it is that bzip2 can deduplicate two files, but it's not about the compression algorithm, at least not in the case you, as you described it. As you noted, the thing is that the zip format packs each file separately, whereas bzip2 is fed the whole tar archive as one stream with the data from all the files. This is a limitation with the zip format. Here is a list of archives that contain a 14k png file twice. 27k png.zip. So that's obviously both files twice. 14k png7z, 17k png.tar.bz2, 14k pngtar.gz, and then 14k png.tar.xz. So in other words, actually out of all that, bz2 actually is the higher of the of the five listed. Well, no, I'm sorry. bz2 is the highest of the of the non-zip options, which is four four things. So uh, 27 for zip, 17 for bzip2, and then 14 for 7, 7-zip, gz, and xz. The zip file was created with 7-zip, and 7-zip reportedly has the best zip deflate compressor out there, but there is nothing it can do to work around the limitations of the file format. With its own 7z format, it clearly compresses the two files together, just like those, just, just like the TARS. 7zip calls this its solid mode functionality. As a side note, bzip2 had pretty bad overhead on the particular file for some reason. Now, when you have larger files, then the compression algorithm does make a difference. Here is an 828k FLAC file twice. So that's 1.7z, uh, 7z, 1.7 megabytes for a FLAC.zip. So again, that's basically twice, right? Um, 828k FLAC.7z, 1.7 megabytes for bzip2, again, 1.7 for gz, and 828 for tar xz. So 7z and xz both make use of the Lisma algorithm designed by Igor Pavlov himself, the author of 7zip, and it has an exceptionally large dictionary size and compression block size, which is why it manages to deduplicate data almost a, a, a megabyte apart. The other algorithms have smaller compression block sizes, so they are too short-sighted to notice the repetition. I don't know how big the default block size is in XZ, but I'm guessing XZ normal compression is the same as 7-zip normal compression, and there the block size is 2 gigabytes. He provides documentation about all of this, documentation.help slash 7-zip slash method.htm. I will put that link in the show notes. I'm almost sure I will remember to do that, and uh, it's super, super interesting. Really, really nice insight into into the the process, and also insight into why tests would render different results depending on what kind of file you're testing it on. You know, you might I would have thought, oh, I could just take any old file and compress it five different times under five different algorithms and or um, compression schemes, and 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 that speaks for the that's the result right of that test. And I'll do it again over here, and that'll be the same thing. And but actually, it would matter. It would it would depend on the size of that of that file, how that how a different compression type deals 
deals with it and, and compresses it. So it would be very confusing, I feel, if you didn't know the this backstory that um, Claquet provides. So thank you very much, uh, Claquet. That's that's absolutely that's just uh, that's great information. Really, really useful. Okay, and and well researched. Darn it! I mean, it's got uh, re- references and resources and stuff, and that's always it's just citations. That's important, right? Okay, it's time for coffee. <laughs> down here with my coffee in hand, ready to continue through the packages uh, that are installed on a Slackware Linux, from, from a Slackware Linux installation. And of course, as you have probably heard me say before, but if you're new, you haven't heard this before, and that is to say that Linux comes with a lot of a lot of applications, a lot of commands, and a lot of us, very many of us, like all of us, pretty much, see, our dirty secret is that we don't ha- know half of those commands. They get used by our computer in one way or another. They get used by other commands. Maybe we use them once every five years when we suddenly need something, but generally we're not super familiar with them. So we're reviewing all of them. You may not have all of these commands on your on your system, because you may not have installed Slackware, you may not have installed all of Slackware, who knows. Point is, they exist, they are often something that you will see on a computer, on a Linux computer, and so you may as well kind of get to know them. So here we go, we're in the util Linux package, which is a collection of lots of handy utilities for Linux, and the one that we left off with mkfs, that's makefilesystem.minix, which we pretty much skipped over, and I'm not going to go back to it, to be honest. It's just, it is what it is. And next up is MakeSwap, M-K-S-W-A-P. This sets up a Linux swap area. This is an interesting one, I find. Not not for what it is, to be honest, but because of what it doesn't tell us. And the thing that it doesn't tell us is what swap is. So we, it, it just uh, it says make swap sets up a Linux swap area on a device or in a file. The device argument will usually be a disk partition, something like slash dev slash sdb7, but can also be a file. The Linux kernel does not look at partition IDs, but many installation scripts assume that partitions of hex type 82, that is Linux swap, are meant to be swap partitions. Now, there's a warning, Solaris also uses this hex code type, so be careful not to kill your Solaris partitions. So in other words, obviously, make swap creates some kind of special designation for a, a disk partition or a file. That's what it says, that is what it tells us, but we still don't know what a swap is. And 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 if you can read the whole thing. You can read the whole man man page, and there's no actual details on what swap involves, like why you would want swap, what it's used for. One of the references is fdisk and swap on. So if you read swap on man swap swap on, uh, it it also doesn't tell you what swap on is 
or what it's actually used for. And and I guess they're just making an assumption here that that people know what swap is. And I, I'm not I'm not comfortable really with with making that assumption. I, I certainly didn't know what swap was. Well, it turns out that back on my old OS before I switched to Linux many many years ago now, there was this thing called I think it was called virtual memory. And it turns out that virtual memory was just space on a hard drive, like just allocated space that that the OS knew not to use except in times where RAM was getting full of information and it needed it, it, there was more information coming in. And so it needed to do something with the stuff in RAM that was currently there not being used such that the 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 more stuff could come in and and have a place to go so it would it would swap the or or i guess it's called paging actually from what i understand it it would it will take all that information in ram and write it to this 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 space on the hard drive and that way more stuff could go into ram so that's swap that's that is what that is that is that's the swap functionality and apparently different operating systems call it different things because I never heard it called swap before. I always called uh, I always heard of it. I th- I'm pretty sure the the term that we used was virtual memory and everyone pretty much agreed that that's what it was called. So I don't think it was just me making stuff up. I, I think it was in the in the settings like in the UI of the of the OS. But anyway, there's a thing called swap and that's what it does. You run out of RAM, you don't want your computer to just die completely or freeze up entirely. So you have to give it space, so like an overflow, a RAM overflow space. Why don't they call it that, RAM overflow? Anyway, swap used to be really essential because we had computers that had like 2 gigabytes and, and 1 gigabyte and 512 megabytes of RAM, right? Not a whole lot of, not, not a whole lot of room, especially as the hard drives got bigger we, and, and, and applications got more complex. It was very reasonable to expect that you would be generating in some in some cases, more information that you want to see on your screen right now, or you want to have being you, you want it to be processed, you know this this cycle of the CPU that doesn't all fit in the RAM, and and so your computer has to flip back and forth between okay, let's move this data over here, take this one in, we'll we'll do our random access stuff, and then we'll move it back over there, and it would just it would it would have to manage the memory in that fashion. I mean, it's it's. That when you think about that, you really understand. I feel like the complexity of computers and the swap space is not ideal because it is slower, obviously, than RAM. RAM is famously fast. If we could run everything off RAM, we would. We like RAM. We like solid-state hard drives. They're a lot faster. Hard drives not not as fast, not not as convenient for either the computer or you. So we don't really want to need swap, and nowadays, frankly, a lot of times we don't. I was surfing with no swap for quite a few years and absolutely loved it. I, I never felt like I was wasting precious hard drive space. Then one day I woke up and realized hard drive space isn't really all that precious anymore, and swap has another function, aside from flipping data in, in and out of RAM. And that is hibernation. So hibernation is specifically when you put your computer so solidly to sleep that you are able to do crazy things like disconnect it from power. I don't know if you've if you've actually done this before or not. I I don't do it frequently, but there are there 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 has been once or twice that I have done that. And you put it into hibernation, 
you, you can disconnect it from power, you can swap out a battery in a laptop, for instance, and then you turn it back on, it wakes up, it grabs everything out of that swap partition, or the swap file, as it turns out, and reapplies it to RAM, your computer becomes awake, and it is in the same place that you left it before you hibernated it. It's pretty, it's, it's quite magical, honestly. So this, and this is different from just a suspend. Suspend is a lot less serious than hibernation. It's just when you, when you're telling your computer to take a break. It, it shuts its screen off, it, it, it spins down the hard drives, it goes into a super, super low power mode. It's suspend. It, it doesn't require anything special from you other than constant source of power. If, if your computer, if, if the battery were to die or if it was to get disconnected from a, from the power while in suspend, then it would no longer be in suspend. It would, it would be off. And, and you could, I guess you could, yeah, you could lose data really if you hadn't saved everything uh, previously. So that doesn't rely on swap. Hibernate depends on swap, either a swap partition or a swap file. There are caveats to that because some some subsystems that 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 help a computer hibernate rely you know cannot use for instance a swap file on on the active file system it doesn't it can't it can't figure that out it can't do that so you'd have to have some other other drive where you could where you could hibernate stuff to if you were just doing a, a file or another another partition or something like that that would that would house this swap file. Not really quite sure on the advantage of that, to be honest, but I'm sure there is a, an advantage. I guess one advantage is that you don't have to have a swap partition pre-designated. You can just say, well, here's this other partition, and I've got a lot of stuff on it, and today I want to hibernate, so I'll make a hibern I'll make a swap file on it, designate, turn it on, so turn swap on, and then tell tell the computer hibernate. So there you go. Um, anyway, you can hibernate your computer without a swap partition. Is my point. But you do have to designate a swap file in order to do that. Either way, whether you're making a partition for swap or whether you're making a file that is going to act as swap space, the thing that enables you to do that is make swap. M-K-S-W-A-P. I have used this directly once, actually. I was, I was thinking about it, and I realized that there was one time a, quite a, a while ago where I was messing around with an install of Slackware, and I decided... You know, I had, I had migrated, like, um, a bunch of partitions to a different drive, and one of those partitions that I wanted to sort of migrate off of my main drive and put onto some other drive was a swap partition. And I, th I, I had to make, do, do a manual make swap in order to designate that as the new swap space, the swap area. It's a pretty simple, straightforward command, like, like a lot of these, these SBIN, uh, util Linux ones have been. It's, uh, you can do uh, make swap dash dash check to check for bad blocks while, while making your swap area. You can do a dash dash force to forcefully make a swap partition, whether, whether the computer agrees with you or not. You can do a dash dash label and then give it a label. And this allows you to specify a swap, a swap, part or a swap space, a swap area with swap on, the command swap on, by label rather than by uh, the UUID of, of that swap area, for instance. Uh, let's see, what else can you do? Swap, oh, you can do dash U to specify the UUID. Otherwise, it just generates one for itself. And that's about it. That's, that's the command, really. The example of usage they provide w with 
the man page is to actually create a swap file. The, the, the process for making a swap partition is pretty simple. It, it, it is simply make swap and then whatever options you want, and then the partition that you want to, to create the swap on, uh, and then finally the, the size, the size of the, the swap partition that you want. Although it notes early in the, um, did I, I think I already read it, didn't I? The, it says the size parameter is actually superfluous because it's, uh, it just, it specifies the desired size of the swap area in 1024 byte blocks. Make swap uses the entire partition or file, um, if, if the size is omitted. So, um, really, make swap slash dev slash sdx1, for instance, where sdx is the, the partition that you want, or the, the drive n- n- uh, letter, SDX, SDA, B, whatever. Um, and the, and one is the partition, so one or two or seven or whatever partition it is. And that will that will make a swap area on that target. You know, your next step likely is going to be a swap on command, but that's not yet. We, 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 I won't go over that because that's, we're not there yet. We're not at swap on. Um, that you can do the file, and and um, that the the example that they gave give for that is an f allocate f allocate that's f a l l o c a t e dash dash length eight g and then you know uh, some some label like swap file that creates a file that's eight gigabytes in size. It is called swap file if that's what you called it, and then you could you could make swap on that file rather than on a device. Next up is pivot underscore root. This is a really, really fascinating one. And, and I think it, it really, it, it is really low level. Likelihood of you finding this useful is pretty low. Uh, unless, you know, until you need it. And that's, that's, I guess, that's how a lot of this works. So much of this is just, just information until one day you realize, actually that one command that was mentioned that one time, could really be useful. Now, if I could only remember what that was. But hey, you, you'll remember where to look, and it's util Linux. So pivot root is a way to um, do... You know, Have you seen one of those ma- magicians, and they they yank the tablecloth out from under uh, a set table, like a tea, you know, a tea set or something, or, or a, an array of, of wine glasses? And they do it so quickly and so sharply that, that nothing moves. That's more or less what pivot root is. It is a system by which you can mount a new location for your the root the root position of your file system while simultaneously unmounting the old one. Now, I don't think that this command is really intended for people to use themselves according to the 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 man page for the system call pivot root. The typical use case for this for this function is during system startup when the system mounts a temporary root file system, like an init RD, an init an init RAM disk, and then it mounts the real root file system and eventually turns the the init RD into the current root of all relevant processes or threads, but but provides you your your actual real root once all the, the all the processes are finished. So that apparently is the the, the expected use of this. So using pivot root in real life is probably uh, an edge case at best. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try it. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna I'm gonna boot up this VM that I have. And while that's booting up, that's this is the uh, CentOS VM that I was 
sort of talking about in the previous episode and r raving about Sintos and Rel. So I, I've, I'm booting that up, and while I'm doing that, I'm just going to quickly kind of... I'll do a man 8 pivot root. By the way, if you're not super familiar, I, I guess man-k... I don't know what that actually stands for, the dash K. It doesn't stand for anything. It's the uh, it's the equivalent of apropos. So if I do man-k pivot underscore root, it tells me that there are two man sections that cover pivot root. One is section 2, and one is section 8. If I look in the man, if I do man-man, it tells me there are actually eight sections in the man um, system. The second one is system calls, and then the eighth one is system administration tools and daemons. So if I do a man space two space pivot root, I get a different man page than what I would get if I just did man pivot underscore root. The default man page for pivot root is the user facing man page, the one that, that provides the command to pivot root. But if you want more information, you can look at man space two space pivot underscore root, and it tells you stuff that you might need to know from the Linux programmer's manual from, from that angle. And in this one, it, tell, it, it tells you the typical use case for the, for the function, for pivot underscore root. And it also tells you a couple of restrictions. And it says the places that you define that you're swapping, the things that you're pivoting, the root directories that you're sw sw switching around, must be directories. They must not be on the same file system. That took me about an hour to figure out. Couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. And then I read man to pivot root and realized, oh, it has to be on this. It cannot be on the same file system, which makes sense when you think about it. But since it wasn't in the man page for the normal command, I just, it didn't occur to me. It also says that your old root location must be underneath the new root which also makes sense if you think about it, because if you're saying, okay, I want this to be the new root of all processes, then then the old one has to exist within that new root, or, or else where does that old one go? So that kind of makes sense. And then it also says no other file system may be mounted on the old, on the location for the old root. Okay, so a lot of that doesn't make sense to you yet, but the command itself, if you do just man pivot underscore root, there's the command, pivot underscore root, and then there's the new root location and the old root location, and that's it. That is, that's the extent of the command. There are two options, dash dash version and dash dash help. So those aren't really options. I mean, they are, but they're not going to affect how you use the, the command. Okay, so here's how we're going to use the command, and that is we are going to, we're going to do pivot root, and then we're going to give it, just like the man page says, the location of our new root... And, the, and then some place to stash the old root. And the reason you have to stash the old root at all is because you have to tell it, you have to give a place for all the running processes to resolve to, or else everything would just be killed very, very abruptly. Okay, so the VM is, is live, it has started up. So what we'll do is, so, so the VM has the, the original ISO that I that that I installed it from still as a as a as a, a known drive so it, it sees that as a as a optical drive or an optical media so we're gonna mount that right now well I'll just in the desktop I'll just double click it now it's mounted great so now in there there's a folder called live OS and in live OS there's a squash FS uh, 
squashfs.img. So we will, I'm going to mount that. I'm going to do a mount run media clat2 CentOS tab because I can't be bothered. Live OS and then squashfs.img onto slash mnt. So that mounts that onto mnt. Now inside of that, it looks like there is, if I look in slash mnt, there's another file system in there called rootfs. All right, so I'm going to mount that over on slash media. And I'm just, I'm just using existing directories because I'm being lazy and there's not really any good reason to be methodical about it. So I'm going to do a mount rootfs.img space slash media, and then we'll cd into slash media. And if I do an ls there, I see that it contains a root file system. It's got bin and boot and dev and etsy firmware, lib64lib, all the things that you would expect to see in your root parti in, in the root partition of a typical Linux system. So I'm going to cd into slash media. Or did I already do that? I don't know. I did it again. Uh, do an ls. Yep, I see everything is here. So then I'm just going to do a uh, pivot underscore root space dot space. And then we're going to... So what we're doing here is we're saying we, we want to pivot the root. The, the new root is going to be right here. This is going to be the new root. So, so we have all these applications available to us, which is important. But we need a place for the old root to be, to be offloaded to. So just sort of looking around. So this is a read-only file system on the ISO, on this, on this drive. So I, I can't make a new directory. So I'm just going to reuse an empty one, which... Uh, lost and found is an empty one, but here's mnt. That's mostly empty. Let's try it. So pivot underscore root space dot space mnt, and then press return, and I get nothing back. Return zero means success. So if I do, for instance, an ls, that should work, and it does. It works. Now, the thing to realize is that that's not the ls from the, from the VM. That's the ls from my new root. It's not really a great way that I can think of to to demonstrate that, except for instance, if I do a mount, if I just type in mount, it failed to read the mtab. And yes, it did. The, the reason would be because mtab usually is in slash etsy slash mtab. And there is no slash etsy slash mtab right now as far as this system knows, because I haven't executed a cheroot. I haven't performed a cheroot. All I've done was pivot the root. And I'm gonna, I, I'm not going to continue this process with cherooting, which would be, I think in real life, that would be the next logical step, is, is to do a cheroot from here. I mean, it's certainly in this situation it would be. Otherwise, why did I just pivot the root? I don't want to conflate the two. So that is what pivot root does. You've just seen it or heard it anyway. That's what it is intended to do, and that's all I'll do with it right now. Next up is raw. Raw is, it's actually another pretty specialized, as far as I know, it's a pretty specialized function, but it, it is kind of interesting. It's, it's certainly interesting to know about. So there are some things out there in the world that prefer to sort of manage their own journaling and, and, and in and out IO processes, that sort of thing. And, and that sort of thing is usually managed, certainly if you're writing data and reading data, that's managed by the file system. But what if you wanted to just use a big storage device without necessarily having to deal with the file system on the storage device? So 
the way that you could do that if you were such an application that needed that kind of control over I.O. processes is to use a raw device. And that is what the raw command is meant to enable. So raw, according to its own man page here, is used to bind a Linux raw character device to a block device. So in other words, you could almost think of it as a pipe, or you could think of it as a symlink. I'm sure neither of those is accurate, but that's kind of effectually the thing that it's very similar to that. And we can demonstrate this pretty easily, although not it's not very exciting, but we could do it by plugging in a thumb drive. So here's a thumb drive. It's got some data on it, but it's not important, so if I screw it up, it's okay. And I'll do an lsblk, and so that the thumb drive I've just plugged in is an is sdg. That's the that's the location of that thumb drive. I'm not going to mount it. I've just plugged it in. Now on Slackware, you have to do mod probe and then raw mod probe space raw in order to get that subsystem up and up and running or or yeah up and running really. Um, on the CentOS VM that I was messing around with earlier. I, I, I noticed, I just happened to notice that raw was already activated. So it, it, it'll differ from system to system, just so you know. If you try the raw command and it doesn't work, don't panic, just mod probe raw. Or, or if it's on another system, you know, system control, uh, start raw, and then you'd probably want to do system CTL uh, enable raw to make sure that it happens all the time. Because what raw does, what this raw system does, is it kind of... It, it it messes around in your device tree. So if we do a slash ls slash dev slash ra, I get a bunch of RAM entries right now. Here's raw, and now I've got a raw CTL. This is on Slackware. Now on other systems, you may it might be, I, I guess in theory, it could be pre-populated with some stuff. I don't know. But what we can do is we can create one, a, a new raw device, and point that raw device to a physical disk. Or actually, I shouldn't say that. I should say to a to a block device, to a, a, a yeah a block device. I, I I imagine that that wouldn't. I mean, it could. It doesn't have to be the physical. You know, it could be. I mean, clearly, it can be the partition. It could be probably an LVM pool, or or a device managed by LVM rather. So it's just a block device. You can you can point a raw designation to a block device. So we're gonna do raw slash dev slash raw slash raw ctl no uh, so we'll just make the first one raw one i guess because that seems to be the tradition i don't know why they don't start at zero but they don't and then slash dev slash what did i say it was sdg right yeah and then i'll hit return and it says it's uh raw dev raw raw one bound to major eight minor 96 great um there's not a whole lot to do from here, unfortunately, because I don't have a program that wants to write to a raw location. But I can I, I, I can come up with a, a vague proof of concept here, just to kind of show what, what is happening. You should not do this unless you are prepared to destroy a, a drive, so don't don't follow along here blindly. So first of all, we'll do an echo of the string GNU space world space order, and we'll redirect that. And again, do not do this unless you are prepared to destroy things, slash dev slash sdx, where that is the valid drive. In my case, it's sdg. So that's done. And now if we do it, now to get that information back, we should be able to do a dd, and then if for input file equals slash dev slash raw, 
So you see, we, we wrote it to SDG, but now we're looking at raw slash raw one. And then so we don't get a bunch of output, I'm going to do count equals one, which I imagine is the lowest, the lowest value I can put in validly. And then I'll hit return. And sure enough, at the, the very top of the output is the string GNU world order. And that's what I would have expected. So that kind of demonstrates that SDG in this case, since I since I bound it to raw one, is the same as raw one. Now, raw devices act a little bit differently than block devices, so you can't necessarily do all the same things. You know how I just did the echo echo GNU world order. I just did that to slash dev slash SDG. Well, I couldn't do that to raw to raw one. It says invalid argument, so it, it doesn't understand how to redirect something to raw a raw device. So that there there are there are things that work and, and things that don't work and that's why I instead of writing to the raw device I wrote to the SDG device and then catted essentially um, or you know dumped the information on raw in if, if you were writing an application that was designed to interact with the raw device I imagine you would probably write it such that it actually spoke to the the raw driver correctly not through echoing and DDing various things but that's the, that's the easy way to to demonstrate it anyway so that's raw not a whole lot to that one really I mean I'm sure there's a whole lot to using it but in terms of talking about it that's about it uh, I know that databases frequently there, there are databases out there that want to see raw devices as their as their destination because like I say they don't want to have to they don't want to um, have to deal with a file system. They want to do all of their own optimizations and manage all that stuff themselves. So very interesting, very good to know about. Someday if you ever become a DBA or, or someone who's doing like really high performance stuff, who knows, maybe you'll use raw. Okay, next up is set serial, and that is to get and set Linux serial port information. Set serial is a program designed to set and or report the configuration information associated with a serial port. This information includes what I.O. port and IRQ a particular serial port is using, and whether or not the break key should be interpreted as the secure attention key, and so on. So, I mean, I've, I've only ever used serial, I guess, twice, really. I mean, in a, in a meaningful way. I mean, as a kid, I, I'm pretty sure I used serial all the time, but uh, because that was, the, that was the port. I remember there were serial ports and there were parallel ports, and, and we always had serial ports. So the the serial port stuff, the serial interfacing that I've used myself as an adult uh, has been both with Arduinos and once with um, with this uh, prototype motherboard that I was tasked to uh, do quality assurance on. And because well, the, I wasn't doing quality assurance on the motherboard. Sorry, I was doing quality assurance on the device that the motherboard that housed the motherboard. The motherboard was driving it. And so sometimes when you would reboot or when you would do an update or something, everything would break. And you needed an, a way to get information w without really having access to to low-level functions because this was, in some cases, friendly interfaces hadn't been flashed onto chips yet. So, so you couldn't just go into a firmware interface and, and grab information or anything like that. So sometimes it was useful to have a serial display. And so someone had developed a, a very simple LED readout that you 
attached to the motherboard some in some to it to, to to the serial port and and you just saw all the text that was going through the computer at the time and i think that's that's what a lot of people don't realize is that computers deal a lot with text a lot more with text than people think i mean a lot of Linux users understand that text is pretty powerful, but people who aren't used to Linux don't really quite gather that, that computers talk in text. They do not talk in Windows or or graphics or GUIs or buttons. Those are constructs. Those are those are illustrations really. And they they represent characters, ASCII and Unicode and ultimately zeros and ones. Of course, you know, I say many people don't realize that. Maybe people do realize that, and that's why when someone sees you using a terminal to type commands directly to the computer, they call it, they you'll hear them sometimes call it programming or coding. And when someone said that to me the first time that that happened, I, I just thought, I'm not coding, I'm just telling my computer what to do. And then you think, oh my gosh, that's coding. It kind of clicks, like, oh, when you're a Linux user and you actually wield the power of Linux, you basically become a coder like you're you're coding things it's just a very ephemeral um and and instant and interactive thing you know you're 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 coding in real time and none of your commands save your history file are are really being uh, recorded and and they're certainly not meant to be replayed at any time but it's still it's still basically coding anyway i'm getting off topic sorry so the the serial port here is it, it is created, they are created, when you boot up. And we can see this. And, and in fact, the script that does this uses the set serial command. So I'll do a less on slash etsy slash rc dot d slash rc set dot, um, dot serial, rather. And this is on Slackware. It, it would be different on a system using system d. And I'm, I'm, I kind of, I've got this CentOS VM still open over here. And I was trying to look really quick, like for us, for some notation about serial in the system D, in the system D um, sort of location, user lib system D, and so on. And I'm not really finding it, so I'm I'm assuming that, kind of assuming that it's it's some target that I, oh here, hold on, here there it is. So possibly, and I could be wrong, but it looks like it is actually I could probably verify. Yeah, it, it kind of looks like there is a serial Getty uh, target, or or rather unit file for systemd, and it looks like that might be what's creating the serial ports. I could be wrong. It could just this. I could be looking. No, it it to me it looks like these are are the yeah. It looks like that's the serial Gettys to me, and certainly the name of it would suggest that it is. But anyway, that's systemd. Let's look at Slackware. So in slash etsy slash rc dot d slash rc dot serial, there is a file that uh, creates some variables, and then it looks to see. So it lists all devs, which is slash dev slash tty capital S. Now these capital S tty's are defined in a file called slash etsy slash serial dot conf. We'll take a look at that in a moment. And this this file here says, okay, well, um, let's look for set serial. And so it looks in bin and sbin, uses whichever one it finds. And then it loads some modules and defines some functions like start, stop, and start. No, uh, start, sorry, start, stop, 
and oh that's it actually start I was thinking status but that is not one of them so there you go and then finally at the very end of this file there is the command itself which is set serial dash bg and then the 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 devices that it found starting with slash dev slash ttys which uh so the the dash b i think um i don't remember what that means in set serial i guess i could look that up really quick but this the dash lowercase g uh means to take the arguments as a list of devices for which that that the command is is looking at and then it looks like dash b is when reporting the configuration of a serial device print a summary of the device's configuration which might be suitable for printing during the boot up process during the slash etsy slash rc script which is exactly i'm pretty sure exactly what it's being used for in slash etsy slash rc dot d slash rc dot serial let's take a look at slash etsy serial dot conf it's a pretty pretty big file but most of it's commented out up here at the top, it says, um, oh, actually, this is all commented out. This is a sample. Um, but I, I don't know where the real one lives. I, I know that these devices are getting created. Uh, and that is slash dev slash tty capital S zero through three are the standard COM one through COM four ports. So if you're looking for a serial port on Linux, the, the standard default ones are slash dev slash tty capital S zero through three. Now that that doesn't mean that that that's the only ones, right? Because I mean there is a set serial command, so that can be invoked and assigned to to another place. So it doesn't have to be slash dev slash tty s zero through three or four through seven or 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 anything. It could be something completely different slash dev slash acm zero or whatever. Doesn't it's it, the, these are just the default like the yeah the ones that are given to you off off the top of the of the boot. So that's what set serial does. I don't know if I've explained that very well, but yeah, set serial simply says, "Hey, here's a device. Um, here's a thing in a device tree. Set that to be a, a serial interface, and then you can, in theory, interact with it." Now, in order to interact with a serial port, you have to be the right. You have to be in the appropriate group, and you you have to be a, a either the correct user, like the owner of the file, or you have to be in the group. I mean, that's that's how Linux works, right? Is permissions. So if we do an ls-h on slash dev slash tty capital S and then asterisk, we see that, oh, I meant dash lh, then we see that all the serial ports that I have on my system right now by default are, are um, they are, the, the file mode of each one is 660, so that's rw, rw, and then nothing. So the owner can read and write the a group which I'll, I'll name in a moment, can read and write. Anyone outside of either of those two things cannot do anything. So the owner is root, the group is dial out, and obviously if you're not either root or in the group dial out, then you cannot access the serial port. This is the cause of much consternation for people who excitedly come home with an Arduino or some kind of cool development board, and they plug it into their computer, usually via USB, universal serial bus, and and it, it attaches to their system in whatever way it has been told to attach. And and then you, maybe you open up a um, your IDE and you try to talk to, you try to flash the Arduino with your little test, your little blinky LED test, and it doesn't, it won't do it. And maybe it doesn't, I, I don't remember the error message. I've seen it a million times, so I don't remember what it is, but 
it'll tell you, you know, hey, can't do that. And you maybe you bang your head against the wall a little bit and try to figure out what's going wrong. Well, probably what's going wrong is that, I mean, the two classic problems here are that you are pointing your IDE at the wrong serial device, which generally, I, th I feel like the IDs are u IDEs are usually pretty good at, like, certainly I'm thinking, obviously, of the Arduino IDE very specifically here. And I feel like that usually does a pretty good job of identifying for you what you should be looking at. Um, and the other, the, the, I think the, the real problem, the one that I see all the time, is that you're, you don't have permission to access that serial device that you are looking at. And very frequently, the way to, to, to solve that is simply to add your user to the dial-out group. Now, then you have to log out and then log back in. That's just a quirk of the user group system. They get loaded at login time. Not reboot, just, just log out and then log back in. So if you add yourself to the dial-out group with user mod, user mod dash, uh, what would it be, dash A, and then dash capital G. It has to be a capital G because you want to you want to create non-primary groups. You just want to do additional groups. And the dash A is to append it. So this way you're not removing yourself from all other groups. You, you are actually adding yourself to that group. So user mod dash A, or we could even do it this way, dash dash append, dash dash groups. And then you could do dial out. And then you hit, and then the, the username, so clat2. I'm already a member of that group, so I'm not actually going to do that. And then you log out, you log back in, and suddenly you can talk to the serial port as as expected. Okay, well that's that's probably about it for the show. I know that the set serial one was kind of a uh, that that wasn't a whole lot about set serial, the command itself. Um, I just I, I guess realistically I don't set that many serial ports myself. In fact, I've never done that myself, and uh, I, I I don't know half as much about serial as I probably ought to. Uh, I don't know really a whole lot about baud rates. I don't know about like a lot of that stuff. So while I I would love to go over, I mean the the man page is pretty long. It's it's a couple of screenfuls. So there are a lot of options, and and you can kind of you can set lots of different parameters to be assigned to a serial port. I just don't know really enough about the serial protocol as to why you would want to change certain things. And and, and I've never had a device that has demanded it. I guess that's the other thing. Actually, that's not entirely true. There was a device, a little onboard device of some sort. It was like a Bluetooth and Wi-Fi chip for an Arduino or some some such board as that. And it did require a very specific, I think, probably baud rate. And I, I do think that I had to change it, but it wasn't that difficult. There was a, an option in the Arduino IDE, I think, on on how I wanted to transmit. I'm 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 a little bit fuzzy on the details because it was one of those things where I was just I was I had a deadline and I was just doing whatever was necessary to get the thing to attach to a network automatically or, or whatever the problem was at the time. So yeah, that's that's my experience with Serial. I would love to hear more about it, you know, as a Hacker Public Radio episode or something. That'd be really cool. But um, Set Serial is the one that you would want to read up on and and discover more about if, if that's the sort of thing that you find yourself needing to do. Okay, that's everything for this episode. So we only got, like, I don't know, three or four more more parts of util Linux down. Yeah, we did, what, make, swap, pivot, root, raw, and set serial. That's respectable. 
Next up is SF disk and swap label and swap off and swap on, switch root, lots of really cool things. Maybe I'll try next episode to get through the whole SBIN. Maybe that'll be the goal. Get get, get all all util Linux through SBIN done. That's that's something like eight eight more commands. I, I might be able to do it if I just if I if I stay focused. So anyway, hopefully this was interesting or at least entertaining, and I will talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.